this morning in three services, I've been testing both congregations on whether this was just an idiosyncrasy of my Texas father's vocabulary or the phrase is known to more people than our family growing up in Mexico way back then under the tutelage of Texans. Here's the phrase, they sent a boy to do a man's job. Does anybody around here say that? Is that a Southern California thing? Okay, four people are familiar with the phrase, that's comforting. That actually explains a lot, the blank stares I got from so many people in the first two services. My dad, and I'm now falling into it, my dad had these little stock phrases that he would use all the time. My favorite, when anything that should work well and be pretty normal and obvious in a modern society, if it didn't work, he would say, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't, and whatever, whatever was missing, right? We can't have good air conditioning. We uh, you know, can't get a microwave that works or whatever it was. This other phrase, the first phrase I mentioned to you, they sent a boy to do a man's job. I heard that for the first time when I was a little boy, and it immediately struck me that, that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> what my dad was lamenting was this required a grown man's perspective, wisdom, strength, ability, skill, and instead we got a boy, and that's why things didn't work out. In 1 Samuel 17, you're going to find someone who's little more than a boy doing a man's job. Difference being, he wasn't even sent there, at least not to do the man's job. In 1 Samuel 17, you're going to find one of the most iconic and familiar Bible stories. If there's a Bible story that's familiar all across the world, even to people who have never opened the Bible, it is the story that took place, the actual history that took place in the Valley of Elah, which you can visit to this day in present-day Israel, when a shepherd boy who was literally running an errand for his dad showed up in God's timing at a battlefield where a battle should have already been fought and enemies should have already been defeated. If you have your Bible, please open it with me. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Here's the setting. Israel has grown weary of trusting God and looked to their own resources. They have rejected the leadership of God and they have chosen, as they said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king to go out in front of our armies and fight our battles for us. I won't take you through all of that, but if you read your Bible carefully and things that have preceded this story, you're going to understand that God's diagnosis is that they have specifically rejected not their leaders, but they have rejected God himself. In their place, in God's place, they are given Saul, a man who the Bible goes out of its way to tell us is a good-looking guy, a man who stood, to use the Bible's phrase, head and shoulders above his countrymen. In other words, Saul was physically impressive, but that's as far as it went in terms of Saul being the right kind of man. He just looked like a leader, as you're going to see in this story. He's the farthest thing from actually being a leader. I think America in 2023, since the TV age, and especially now in the internet age, I think Saul would have been attractive to most of us as well, for one reason. 
He looked the part. He didn't have it in his heart. He didn't have it in his character. He didn't have it in his mind to do well what God had entrusted him to do as the king of Israel, but he looked the part, which is what makes the story that follows so painful. Israel is once again entangled with its chronic and generally successful enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines are seagoing people, and in terms of warfare, they have an astonishing technological advantage, which you're going to see subtly referenced in the story as we move through it. The Philistines have, probably through conquering and defeating another nation, have broken through the technological advancement of making weapons of war out of iron, and it gives them an extraordinary advantage in hand-to-hand infantry combat in the ancient world. The Philistines are again threatening Israel, and in 1 Samuel 17, we pick up the story. And our interest in the story is very simple. You're going to see how David, who is most well-known for being a shepherd boy, actually became the king of Israel, and we're going to learn how how David's life reflects to us a lesson that can be open to any one of us. The reason we're diving into this story is quite simple. We are in a little series, topical series. We normally go through books of the Bible, but I've decided to take just a few weeks with you to show you what ordinary people can do under the hand of God. There is no question about it. Don't misunderstand the Bible story from a conventional hero story. There is no doubt about it. What God most wants us to see is the ordinariness of David. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8, we read this. If you have your notes, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people, Israel. You'll notice I've jumped from 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is the end of David's reign. This is a rare and blessed time in David's life. God has subdued all of his enemies. David has nothing but success. He finds himself in the statesmanlike position of being able to plan his legacy and look forward to the next leader of Israel, And as God and David discuss all of that, God reminds David where he found David, what he brought David out of. Thus says the Lord of hosts, meaning the God who is in charge of not only angel armies, but Israel's armies. The God of war who has kept you safe all these years. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Reflect for a moment. Number one Bible reading tip around here is, for those of you who have been around a while, what is it? Slow down. That's just a very simple statement, but savor what it tells you because there's opportunity and blessing for you in it as well. When God took hold of David, he found him in a pasture. David was following dumb animals around. There is no more menial task, and you're going to see that in the family structure of David for a moment. He is 
you're going to learn he is the youngest of eight boys. He is being given a simple, ordinary, menial task. If you got older, if you got stronger, you could leave this safely behind. David, when God found him, was in the pasture. He was following farm animals around, and from those humble beginnings, God said, I took you to be prince over my people, Israel. And my question is, how did that happen? How does an ordinary person rise to the point of blessing and leading and being a blessing to so many people? The question in our terms is simply this, what happens when an ordinary person trusts God? That's what this series is about. And don't misunderstand, because last week I told you about all the false cultural pressures that are upon us, that you have to be winning all the time or you're a loser. And if you're not an outlier, you're being well left behind. My plea to you last week and exemplified in what remains of this series, these next two Sundays, is to show you how God, all across Scripture, all across this big book, how He takes ordinary people with little to humanly recommend them to others and nothing in them to impress God, how He takes them and makes them and uses them to do extraordinary things because He can do the same for you. You may never rule, you may never lead an army, your name will not be written in the pages of Scripture, but your ordinary life matters a great deal. You were made in the image of God, you are loved by the Father to the point of the Father sending the Son to live in your place, die for your sins, take His own life back from the dead so that you could have His eternal life. This little slice of eternity called your life matters to you, and it matters much more deeply to the God who gave it to you. And what He wants you to do is to take courage and instruction from the Bible that every single person God used in the Bible would be the first to tell you, those who knew Him best would be the first to tell you that they themselves were ordinary people. They just happened to do something simple in the service and in their belief of an extraordinary God. So that's good news for all of us. All God has available to use are ordinary people. If you want proof, look up here. If you want further proof, look around the auditorium. I mean, don't make faces at each other, but this is it, folks. This is as good and as bad as it gets. It's just us. It's normal people worried about ordinary things. Making rent, making the mortgage, raising the kids, aging, illness, work pressures, regrets over the past, uncertainties about the future, all of that is normal. It's ordinary. And here in 1 Samuel 17, we find out how the boy who was called from the pastures to lead Israel, this is the decisive moment that showed Israel and the whole world what God first put in David and saw in David. 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. Notice they're already encroaching on their territory. And encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul, that's their tall king, and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. 
And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And we've been there a few times as a church. I hope we can go again soon. If you stood with us in the valley of Elah, you'll realize what a very small place that is. I imagine that it was something like the American West, just big, wide open spaces, miles of distance. It's not. It actually feels frighteningly small and intimate. It's a shallow little valley, barely worthy of the name, and you can see to this day the hillsides that the armies must have stood upon, and you can realize the fear that must have entered into the hearts of every soldier, especially those who were just farmers and craftsmen drawn from their families to form a makeshift army to protect the wives and children that are just behind them as they stand on their own border and look across an enemy that they already know has every advantage in technology. They have more than that, too. Look in verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Gath is Goliath's hometown. It's only seven miles away from where these armies stand. His height was six cubits and a span. In my Bible translation, unfortunately, does not reproduce in measurements that we're familiar with, but maybe your Bible does, or you can look it up in the footnote. What this is telling you is that Goliath stood an imposing nine feet and nine inches tall. Some Bible scholars dispute that claim, but they seem to do so simply on the fact that they don't believe it, not necessarily what the text tells you. This is a terrifyingly large soldier, and the narrator slows down to help you see what the frightened Israelites saw. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. What that means to you and me is his chainmail was 125 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That means 15 pounds of iron, and if that weren't enough, his shield-bearer went before them. Now, as we've studied Bible narratives before, I've always tried to remind you something about them. When a Bible narrator slows down, that's like slow motion in a movie. The narrator is trying to get your attention, trying to slow you down by giving you details. We're going to come to David eventually. David is described in just a handful of words. He's just a young, good-looking, red-cheeked kid. Nothing impressive about him. Goliath, the author slows down and runs the camera from the crown of his head to his gigantic feet and shows you every bit of equipment. It seems that his weapon was so imposing that the narrator hardly knows how to describe it. The spear's head weighs 15 pounds. That's about the weight of a standard shot put. Imagine the size of a spear that a man who is 9 feet 9 inches tall, who can feel comfortable in 125 pounds of chain link armor, imagine what that looked like. The narrator says it's like a weaver's beam. In other words, this doesn't even look like a weapon. He has to refer to, their, to another part of their world to give a picture of what was facing the Israelites. Now, a man that could generate that kind of power 
and had a spear that would probably be several feet taller than he was, tipped with a 15-pound spearhead, if he caught you with that, it's over. He's going to run that thing straight through you. They're going to find pieces of you scattered everywhere. Israel understood it. Look at their reaction, verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. You'll notice earlier in the story that Saul, Goliath was called Philistine's champion. That's not a champion like you and I have that we give athletes rings and t-shirts hats in the locker room to celebrate that they're the best in the league on that particular year. A champion in the ancient world was a really interesting idea because ancient war was generally genocidal and whole cities and families and lineages were wiped from the map. They had a limiting idea. Let's not destroy each other for generations to come. Let's not change history through this single battle. Let's have champion combat. We'll send our best soldier, you send our best soldier, the armies will watch and cheer their champion on, and we'll have a covenant that the winner respects the outcome, and if our man kills your man, then you will be our servants. There's a deeper meaning as well that's going to be very obvious as the story unfolds. This isn't just a matter of hand-to-hand combat. Goliath and Israel both know that what Goliath is bringing to the battlefield is a spiritual challenge. The Philistines have their gods. Israel has a single god that they claim to be the true god who is the maker of heaven and earth as their songs tell them. And this isn't a playoff, if you will. This is a god-off. Goliath is inviting them, I'm here representing my gods, I trust that the gods I serve will give me victory. You're servants of a tall king, pick somebody, send him out here, let's find out who has the better soldier and who serves the better God. You already know how Saul's going to take it. Look in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and, what's it say there? Greatly afraid. How embarrassing that greatly needed to be explained. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shabbat. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. What's the rest of that verse say? 
morning and evening. Now imagine the humiliation, because that went on for 40 days. Their wives and children have been in agony back home, wondering what's happening for over a month. And it has devolved into this humiliating ritual of non-combat, where Goliath walks out and says, why are we here? I'm easy to find. Pick a man. Here's a hint. Your tall king, the tallest man in your kingdom, is already in charge. He surely came with you. Send him out. Let's settle this. Ancient combat with these weapons would literally take a matter of minutes. It might be less than that. It may be one thrust, one parry, one move, and then one man is dying and the defeated army is running for their lives. That challenge has been hurled at Israel night and day for 40 days and all that can be heard is the quiet laments and the complaining of Saul and his men back in their tents. But things are about to change. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah, several gallons, of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now I want you to read the text carefully because the narrator wants us to see this. What is David doing? Is he going to war? No, he's the youngest of eight. It seems that even in these desperate times, Jesse only has three boys that are old enough and strong enough to go to war. Five are staying home. David is the youngest among them, and he's been relegated to a pretty normal task. What's he doing? He's running an errand. He's literally delivering, if I read this correctly, granola and cheese sandwiches. This is not a special forces operator. This is a kid finding about his brothers and in these makeshift volunteer armies of the ancient world making sure that they have enough to eat. And notice 10 cheeses to the commander is even trying to curry favor with the sergeant major, trying to get in good with some of the the non-commissioned officers in this army. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, and I detect irony there, because they've lined up for battle, but they haven't fought. That's the point, and that's the problem. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And now that you've read and understand what's going on here, this is actually kind of a pathetic scene because they're yelling and screaming for war, but what are they going to do? Nothing. But David hears the war cry. He hears men better and stronger and older than himself singing songs and screaming mottos of war and defense of their home and honor to God. And I wonder what he might have felt. I think the errand boy might have felt his heart swell a little bit with pride and think to himself, I'm just an errand boy, I don't really belong here, but I'm so glad that these are the men who stepped forward to defend us. Then he gets there and finds out what's really happening. 
Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and here's where the story turns. Notice the last sentence in verse 23. What's it say? And David heard him. Ominous music, because that is the beginning of the end for Goliath. His brothers don't know it. Only David and his God know this, but David heard what Goliath said, and I want you to see the difference in his response compared to every man in Israel, and especially his king. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Let me explain to you what you just read. Saul's so desperate that he's been writing laws back in his tent. And here's the offer. If anybody's willing to step out there and take care of this dude... You'll be rich. We won't tax you. And you can be my son-in-law. You can have my daughter in marriage. There's literally nothing more than an ancient king can offer than this. It's not unprecedented, but it is desperate. David can't believe it. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, sounds just like a little brother. Listen, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? You understand what's happening here? His oldest brother's ashamed. The oldest man in the family knows that what they're suffering on that battlefield is abject humiliation. But since Saul won't do anything, and evidently Eliab won't do anything, he questions David's motives. He has contempt for David's heart. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Here's not the point of the story, but here's one thing we can learn from it along the way to the point. Don't ever listen to people who are not trying to serve and obey God themselves. They'll tell you that your efforts to do so are unfaithful or self-motivated. Don't listen to people who aren't doing the work when you're trying to do it yourself. Verse 30, he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, what do you think Saul's going to say? Finally, a courageous man among us. No, more naysaying, more negativity. 
Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, you're just a kid. He's been killing men since he was a kid. You can't face him. Listen to David. This is not first David's first time stepping up and honoring his family and honoring his God. This is not the first time David has faced opposition and seen God take care of him. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine, in other words, this man who doesn't know our God, who defies our God, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. More humor. The Lord will have to go with you. I, the tallest man in our army, I'll be right here. You're being shown the portrait of two different kinds of people, and you're being invited to find yourself in the story and decide how you're going to act. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Are you seeing the irony, the pathetic nature of this story? Saul's saying, I can't go, I won't, he'll kill me, I'm scared. You can't go either. Yes, I can. God has taken care of me in the past. He'll take care of me today. In that case, since you're going, take my weapons and armor with you. There's another lesson along the way. Not every person who claims to know God and not even every person who actually does know God is willing to step out in faith and obey Him. But many times the people who are not serving God themselves will tell you to do it the way they would do it if they were willing to do it themselves. Don't listen to them. They're literally not in the fight. David knows what he has to do because he knows how God has made him and provided for him. Very, very simple tools and a single, simple weapon. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So let's review the weapons and equipment. What's he got? What's a staff? That's not a group of people that work for him. What's a staff in this context? That's a stick and a shepherd's sling and a bag to hold five stones. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. This is what has aroused David's faith. His God is being insulted. It's the word of his God that's being questioned and challenged. Then the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword 
and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly, all these cowering men behind me, is who David is referring to. All this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistine saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, finally, and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. They chased them for seven miles at least. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. That's the story. Why is it here? Let me tell you first what it's not. It's not a story of self-improvement. That's how it's often taught that we all have giants in our lives and we all have to overcome it. We just have to be brave and go face the giant. The giant won't be as strong as we think. It's a misunderstanding of the story. Bible heroes are not like heroes in any other part of literature. Bible heroes, and that's the most encouraging part, are just ordinary people. Even Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian who ever lived at the end of his life, was still saying to himself and to others, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not what I once was, but by the grace of God and by the grace of God only, I am what I am. What happens when an ordinary person trusts God? Well, just one thing. First of all, you see the strength of God and not the size of the opposition. That's what made David utterly unique on this battlefield. Goliath knew and savored and trusted in his own strength. He thought that pagan gods, which Paul would call the teaching of demons, stood behind him, and he imposed himself physically everywhere he went and struck fear into the hearts of people who should have felt only manly, soldierly courage. The only person in the valley of Elah who could see what God saw is David because David was not impressed and did not take into account the size of the man who hated him and wanted to kill him. He could only see the size and the strength of the God who placed him there in the first place. That also means that you succeed where qualified people feared and failed. What the world is looking for continually is people who are well qualified to do certain things. God looks for people who can't do them themselves 
who God will save and rescue and make His own children, and God will qualify them, not according to the world's and the culture's standard, but according to God's standard, and then send them out to do things that the people themselves know are completely impossible and inexplicable had God not done them. The difference is one single thing, faith. Saul saw the size of the soldier and feared. Saul became a desperate negotiator, a pathetic politician, offering money, offering tax exemptions, offering his own family up in marriage. If only anyone would do what Saul himself should have stepped forward with the faith of being God's king to do. Because Saul would not do it, David did. God providentially arranged that the shepherd boy was literally running sandwiches over to the battlefield just in time to hear Goliath curse David's God by the name of his gods, and David made a simple faith-based decision, well, this will never do. Somebody has to stop this. Are you kidding me? Did you hear what he said? What's the king offering? I'll take care of it. In David's mind, it was as simple as that, and he succeeded where other more qualified men had feared and failed. It really, all of these stories, if I taught you for the rest of the year what an extraordinary eternal God does through the lives of ordinary people, you would find that the lesson always drives back to one simple thing. Ordinary people such as us trust God. Take Him at His word. Trust Him enough to do what He says, and then they discover that He does what He promised. Hebrews 11.6 makes that clear. This takes us into the New Testament, but it points out this universal principle. Read this with me, please. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith, in other words, without personal trust in God, you cannot please Him. Because if anyone is going to draw near to God, as we were just singing, we must believe two things. First of all, that God is there, and then if we draw to Him in simple childlike faith, He will reward us because we have trusted Him and we have sought Him out. This really isn't that hard to understand. It's not that the Christian life is difficult. It's just that it's untested. It's not a matter of it not being true. It's more a matter of it not being tried. Let me explain it to you like this. Because God is a person. I don't mean that He is an ordinary human being such as us. No, He is a spirit and He is the creator of all of us and everything that exists. But He is a person. He makes human persons in His image in part so that we can enjoy Him, love Him, know Him, enjoy Him forever. And what it takes for persons, for individuals, for people to have a relationship between the two of them is trust. It really always only gets down to that. Here's a simple way to understand that. I come up to you after the service and say, listen, I'm so glad you're here. Glad God sent you our way. Really, really happy you're part of our church family. I just need you to know one thing. I don't trust you, and I never will. 
I don't, I don't believe a word you say, and not only am I keeping an on, eye on you, you should know that because I don't trust you, I've asked the staff and some key leaders and volunteers and deacons just to keep eyes on you anywhere you are on this campus or in this city. Just know that, that we're watching, okay? Just want you to know that. You coming back to church next Sunday? No! Our relationship's over. You're putting me on Facebook blast saying that the guy at the church down on Warner Avenue in Huntington Beach has lost his ever-loving mind. Who would say such a thing? What a horrible thing to say to somebody. It's trust. Without faith, without personal trusting God, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Simply put, the qualification to please God is to trust God to the point of obedience. Not to say that you believe in God, but to say that you believe God, which makes all the difference in the world, and you believe God enough to not only say good things about Him, but to do what He says. James 1 verse 22 says, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If Sunday after Sunday we become the kind of Christians who hear the Word, and I become the kind of pastor who teaches the Word, but you don't put it into practice, and neither do I, James warns, we're only fooling ourselves. You're not fooling anybody else. You're not certainly not fooling God. You're only deceiving yourself. The good news I have for you in closing is that this ordinary man in the valley of Elah is only a faint picture of Israel's true king, of the good shepherd, of the real Savior who is Jesus. Listen to the good news of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, for to this you, Christians, have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Notice, that's obedience. That's imitation, that's seeing the example and hearing the word of Jesus and doing what he says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. Here's what Jesus was doing on the cross. Continued, what's it say there? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What was the son doing on the cross? He was trusting the father. And you've been given Jesus as a Savior and Jesus as an example so that you would do the same. Jesus was trusting the Father on, your, on the cross and taking my sins and yours. Listen, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's the good news of the gospel. An exchange has been made. You don't have to suffer for your sins. You don't have to pay for your sins. Jesus already has. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. David was a good shepherd. He was a faithful shepherd. He was not the true best shepherd. In David in Psalm 23, you may remember a thousand years earlier wrote this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even if, he wa even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will not fear the giant. I will not fear death because the Lord himself is with me. Why is 1 Samuel 17 in the Bible? Not as a self-improvement story. 
Not to tell you that you can do better and you have to. No, it's an invitation for you to put more trust in God and obey Him more fully because in this life, the minute you start following Jesus, assume you start following Jesus as a 13-year-old kid, you're going to have difficulties, you're going to have a lot of fears, you're going to have a lot of things that cause you anxiety and that tempt you to do your own thing and follow in your own way. That opposition, that fear never stops. The kinds of challenges change, but the fear between deciding self-preservation, self-direction versus obedience to God, that challenge never goes away. I've been following Jesus since I was a kid, and I'm here to tell you I need to do it afresh today. I need to do it again this week. The changes of life impose upon you the need to trust God with the new trouble, with the new danger. But you can In your teenage years, singleness and figuring out what you're going to do with your life offers a lot of fear and anxiety. Then, in many cases, you get married. Does marriage have its own troubles? Absolutely. Then, you have a few kids. Does having kids uh, create its own issues and questions? Absolutely. Then your kids have kids, and I'm told, I don't know there yet, that creates a whole other level and a whole new arena in which to trust God. In all of life, you will always be seeing the size of the opposition, the reason not to obey God. Look past that. Look to the Good Shepherd. Remember the promises that God made you, which are even greater and more explicitly identified in the person of Jesus Christ. And remember that ordinary people who act on God's promises will live out His purpose and bless His people if only they will obey Him and act.